Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson and the nightlight is on for Friday, December 22nd. Hope you are enjoying the run up to Christmas. It's been a busy day here with a new resolution from the UN with regard to the war in Israel. I'll tell you all about that. Also, you may remember that Pope Francis announced this week that Catholic priests could bless same-sex couples. I was skeptical, so I read into the documentation behind it. My skepticism was well-placed. I'll explain. Also next year, there's a lot of concern about the future of democracy, but the Washington Post posted some ideas to improve it. I'll show you, and you can see what you think. Be sure to go to my Linktree site to follow me on social media, subscribe to me on YouTube, and put a few dollars in the tip jar. It has been a wildly busy day, and it's like, just started, basically. I know for some of you on the East Coast, it feels like the day is, is kind of halfway over, but I'm here in Las Vegas on a rainy day outside. It's a bit cooler than normal. It's a little rainier than normal. And I, I feel like I've been kind of running all over because I've been doing a lot of, of reporter-producer work, just trying to follow what's happening at the United Nations. But it's... It's been a pretty momentous day. There's a lot to talk about, and I will get to that <clears throat> very shortly. Good to see those of you here on the stream. And for those of you watching on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, hello to you. Appreciate you being here. I will try not to cough too much. I got my freshly brewed peppermint tea. Got a little Gatorade here. And of course, the mute button is at the ready. For those of you watching on X, please know that I cannot see your comments in the chat here. But if you go to my Linktree site, you can watch on YouTube, and that's the easiest way to chat. Also a place with a number of people. Here are regulars, our frequent flyers, who I'm delighted to have here. Hello, Sarah on YouTube. Good to see you. Hello, hello. Uh, Nora, hello on YouTube. Nora writes, hi, folks. Managed to get the tamale masa made and all but one gift wrapped so far. Y'all close to ready where you are? Nora, we don't need you showing us up. We don't. We don't, we don't need you making us feel bad. For, <laughs> for how not ready we are. Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, and Crystal, oh hello Crystal on YouTube. Hi from Seattle. Hi Crystal, thank you for watching. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome, hope you're enjoying the run up to the holidays as well. It is a busy, 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 busy day here in Las Vegas and here at my place uh, trying to get ready for the holidays, but I will worry about that later because there's all kinds of newsy stuff to talk about including the story we were talking about yesterday in great detail in great detail which is the ongoing effort to resolve the war in Israel. Let me start with that. This morning the UN Security Council met in New York and it finally approved a resolution regarding Gaza. Now this is a process that's been going on for a while. There had been a lot of wrangling over the verbiage of this resolution. The U.S. was not sure that it was going to support it at all because some of the things in the resolution may not have worked to the U.S.'s strategic interests with regard to Israel. And so they've been going through a bunch of different dra drafts. Well, today, the U.N. Security Council did indeed, and I'll show you this report from Reuters, did indeed vote to approve a resolution. The resolution is somewhat toned down from previous versions of it, but it does call for boosting humanitarian aid in the Gaza Strip. The idea behind it is to set the circumstances in place to reduce the hostilities in the region. It does not actually call for a ceasefire outright. That was one of the things that had been kind of a sticking point for a while about whether or not the UN Security Council was going to call for Israel to stop the war. Now, to be clear, 
This is a resolution. This is a statement from the UN Security Council's 15 permanent members. It's not law, right? It's not an order. They're not ordering Israel to stop fighting. They're not even ordering Hamas to stop fighting. But the idea is to create a means for there to be more humanitarian aid that flows more smoothly. If you look at the Reuters write-up, they note that the resolution, the one that passed today, take, gives Israel more control over the aid deliveries. More than 2 million people in Gaza under some amazingly harsh circumstances. And Israel is monitoring a lot of the humanitarian aid that comes in through Egypt. Israel and Egypt share a border. Gaza sits right down near the Egyptian border in a crossing in the city of Rafah. There's another crossing called Kerem Shalom, and this allows Israel to have a greater amount of control. Now, one of the hard things about the UN Security Council is that votes have to be unanimous. It doesn't mean that everyone has to vote yes. That's an important detail. It does not mean that everyone has to vote yes. Joshua, that makes no sense. What does that mean? You'll get it in a second. But just understand, it doesn't mean that everyone has to vote yes, but it does have to be unanimous. I know that sounds like a puzzle. It will make perfect sense in just a second. So the resolution, the text of the resolution, by the way, I would, you know how much I love primary documents. Normally I would just go to the UN site and show you the resolution. It hasn't been published on the UN's website yet. It's resolution 2720. Last I checked, they had only published up to 2719. So it's not there yet. Otherwise I would show you the exact text. I'll look for the, as a matter of fact, let me look for the text right now, but I bet it's not up there. But if the actual text is up there, I will just go ahead and show you. But it basically does a number of other things, including calling for humanitarian assistance to be delivered safely at scale directly to the people who need it and to lay the groundwork for a cessation of the hostilities. So it's kind of a step short of calling for like a ceasefire ceasefire. But the idea of the resolution is to set up the circuit. Yeah, the resolution is not published yet. Set up the circumstances so that hostilities can cease. The initial draft, according to Reuters, had called for, quote, an urgent and sustainable secession of hostilities to allow <clears throat> aid to continue. Now, Russia's ambassador was not happy with this and spoke before they voted. I watched the thing today. I watched the vote today. He spoke before the vote and brought forth an amendment that would put stronger language that would call for hostilities to cease right now for, quote, an urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities. The members voted for that. Ten voted in favor. Four abstained. One member vetoed it. Guess who vetoed it? The United States. Partly because I think that's not the kind of rhetoric that the Biden administration wants to send to the Israeli government right now, stop fighting, is not what the U.S. is telling Israel. They're telling Israel to fight in more targeted and precise ways. But that was not something the U.S. was ever going to support. And so Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who's the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., rose her hand when that amendment came up. So Russia's resolution, Russia's amendment to the resolution failed by one vote, and that one vote came from the U.S. The U.S. also called out Russia for, say, for basically, and this is my paraphrase, but Linda Thomas-Greenfield called out Russia for even bringing that amendment forward. The idea, and again, I'm paraphrasing, is you're one to talk about a cessation of hostilities. Ukraine much? 
you're not an honest broker on that one. So no, they did ultimately approve a measure. The measure is moving forward. And that is going to lay the groundwork for UN officials to get involved in helping with the, with the provision of humanitarian aid. Now, I'm going to let you hear what Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said after the resolution passed in just one second. It's worth noting that there were, of the 15 members of the UN Security Council, 13 voted in favor of the resolution. No one voted against it. But there were two countries that abstained from the whole resolution without Russia's amendment. Two countries abstained from the vote. One was Russia because it wanted its amendment in. The other was the United States. So this resolution, just so you understand going forward, it's not accurate to say that the U.S. supported the U.N. Security Council's resolution. That's not quite precise enough. It is more precise to say that the U.S. allowed a U.N. Security Council resolution. That's what I mean by saying that it has to be unanimous, but everyone doesn't have to vote yes. That's what I meant by that. The U.S. did not vote yes to this resolution. It just abstained from the vote, as did Russia, and allowed the resolution to move forward. So that means that the Biden administration's policy, the American policy on Israel, has not changed. It still supports the military campaign of the Israeli government and is not telling Israel to stop fighting. Now, I'm not saying that they should. I'm just trying to clarify what's going on. It means that it is allowing the Security Council to call for the provision of humanitarian aid under a much more regimented and widespread program. You may remember yesterday on the show, the latest report from the UN is pretty horrific in terms of the conditions on the ground, especially for refugee children. I mean, we're hearing more about doctors having to perform surgeries without anesthetics. Lord Jesus, can you imagine? Or about the dramatic lack of access to water, that there are children who have about one and a half to two liters of water available per day when the standard per day for an emergency is 15 and they've got about one and a half to two, or where in some areas there's one toilet for every 700 people. Horrible, horrifying situations. I mean, you know what it's like being in a theater at intermission and there's a line around the corner for the ladies' room and the men's room, or being at a stadium at a ball game and you know one of the bathrooms is out and you've got a line down the concourse of people waiting. You know how bad that could be. But 700 in camps where you have women and elderly and children and people with all kinds of medical conditions, and then already existing problems with sanitation and disease and all kinds, and you know, just children dealing with stress, in, you know, needing to clean out diapers, lack of access to, clean, to sanitary products, women who may be menstruating and have lack of access to sanitary products. It's just horrific, the amount of need in this area with no working infrastructure. Zero. So hopefully this resolution will go a long way toward moving that forward. I do want to play you what Linda Thomas-Greenfield said. This is about two minutes of her remarks. These are after the resolution passed, part, just so you hear the U.S. government's position following it. And one other little dig that she threw in at the end of her remarks. So you'll hear the part about the resolution, 
And then that will butt up against something else that she said a little later on of one piece that the U.S. government, I think understandably, <clears throat> is disappointed, excuse me, is disappointed with some other nations for not saying more vocally. Here is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., speaking this morning after the Security Council approved the resolution. Council made clear that addressing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza needs to remain at the forefront of our agenda. Today, this council made clear that all hostages must be released immediately and unconditionally, and that humanitarian groups must be able to access hostages, including for medical visits. Today, this council made clear that all parties must respect international humanitarian law. Today, this council made clear that civilian and humanitarian facilities, including hospitals, medical facilities, schools, places of worship, and UN facilities, as well as humanitarian personnel and medical personnel, must be protected. This applies to all parties to this conflict. To Israel, but also to Hamas, a terror group that instigated this conflict and that wages war from inside homes and hospitals and UN sites and uses innocent civilians as human shields, an act of cowardice and cruelty. While we are encouraged that the Council spoke out on this humanitarian crisis, we're deeply disappointed, appalled actually, that once again, the Council was not able to condemn Hamas's horrific terrorist attack on October 7th. And I can't understand why some Council members are standing in the way and why they refuse to condemn these evils unequivocally. Why is it so hard to condemn Hamas for slaughtering young people at a concert, for burning families alive, for the reports of widespread sexual violence? Why? I will never understand why some council members have remained silent in the face of such evil. So that's Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., speaking just today after the resolution passed. As for her question at the end, why it is so difficult, I think that's a good question. I wish I had a good answer to that. I wish I knew why there was not more of a widespread, vocal, visceral condemnation of what happened. Now, the UN Security Council and other UN members have affirmed Israel's right to defend itself. The UN was one of the agencies that kind of pushed for Israel's existence after all, its creation back in 1948. But they haven't really, I think, for the US's, to the US's taste anyway, been as vocal or full-throated in its outright condemnation of Hamas and its outright support for Israel. I think part of that is just because of the optics of the way the war is being fought. And because of the humanitarian aspect of this, you have too many other nations in the Arab world who are fixated on what's happening to the Palestinian people and the intense bombardments from Israel. And I think that kind of muddies the waters a little bit. Not that Hamas is the hero in this or that Israel is necessarily the villain, but I think the optics of those two things side by side complicate things in a lot of different places in a conflict that is very visceral for a lot of people in ways that I don't think I saw coming. Like, I don't know that I would have predicted 
this degree of intense, vociferous, emotional reaction to what's happening in Israel. Not that people don't care about Israel, but I think just sort of the nature of all of this really struck a nerve in a way that I didn't see coming. And maybe there's just some other human intangibles to this that are going either unspoken or unintegrated into the conversation that need to be spoken, dealt with candidly, unabashedly for the sake of these kinds of condemnations. But man, has this kind of spun in some directions that I did not see coming. Let me get to one or two of your comments before we continue. Oh, actually, before I get to your comments, sorry. Um, no, I am gonna, I'm gonna get to your comment. Actually, this one from Nora I wanna get to now. Nora asks on YouTube, how solid is the sourcing on these reports of appalling conditions? Good question, very solid. The report about children and their water availability, that comes directly from UNICEF. Here's the report, barely a drop to drink. Children in the Gaza Strip do not access 90% of their normal water use. UNICEF has been doing a lot of work in terms of trying to put the picture of what's happening in Gaza front and center. They've also been very clear that their staff is in mortal danger all the time, just trying to do the humanitarian work on the ground and also to coordinate. UNICEF, <coughs> excuse me, UNICEF in some ways is kind of like FEMA here in the US which is a kind of an agency that not every country has, by the way. Canada does not have an equivalent to FEMA. So when they went through those wildfires earlier this year, it really overwhelmed them because they didn't have a central agency whose job was to coordinate everything. UNICEF's job is kind of like FEMA in some ways in that they are there to help coordinate humanitarian relief on the ground. So logistically and technically and economically, they know where things are and what the need is, and they can interface with other governments. So I think UNICEF is an honest broker in all of this in terms of just what they see. Also, UNICEF's website has an immense amount of multimedia content. Like they just have pictures. They have you know, photo and videos and they're doing interviews, you know, all around the world of, of what's happening in these areas. I was trying to pull up one briefly so that I could show you what's going on there. There's so many. God, there's just, I mean, it's, it's an enormous trove. Also, there's been a lot of reporting. There's been some more reporting that's been right on the ground. Um, Clarissa Ward from CNN was able to get into the Gaza Strip without... Israeli defense forces with her. She got in on another aid truck, basically, with somebody else from, I forget what country they were with, but went into Gaza, reported for the day, got out safely, thankfully, but was able to report on her own without any Israeli soldiers around her. And they kind of act like minders in a way. A number of the reports that have come out from Western sources, I think are indeed reliable, but they are reliable partly because they disclose that some of the video of the battlefield had to be approved by Israeli forces to make sure, at least from their perspective, that they didn't give away troop positions or show troops faces. I can understand that, and I'm okay with it as long as I know that I'm getting a filtered view, that it's a real image, but there is a filter over that that was necessary for us to even get this picture. I think that's okay in a situation like this. I mean, this is a war. Nobody's gonna be able to just get the picture on the ground. I think even some of the images that come out of social media 
have to be dealt with very carefully because everyone's got an angle, everyone's got a view, you know, everyone's got a view no matter what. But I think the ability to just kind of step back away from what's happening and take the view that you have as best you're able is still valuable as long as you kind of know what the nature of it is and you kind of know what you're, what you're looking at. Um, and then also, sometimes it makes a difference video versus audio. I see Sarah's comment on YouTube. Sarah writes, the reports from Gaza are heartbreaking and terrifying. I have heard actual doctors speaking on NPR of doing surgery without anesthesia. Yes. And that's one of the benefits sometimes of not having cameras with you, of just asking. I, I know this firsthand from having been in public radio. Sometimes just talking to people and not necessarily having to broadcast pictures around the world can make a difference there too. Here we go. I was looking on the UN, on UNICEF's web, website. There are plenty of accounts of what happens there, and they've just been taking pictures. One of them is listed as a picture of a Palestinian child named Ali standing confused in front of his destroyed house due to bombardment in Sheikh Zayed City, northern Gaza Strip. Then another picture, Abu Muhammad inspects stones from his destroyed house in Sheikh Zayed City, north of the Gaza Strip. And on and on and on. More and more pictures. This is people selling winter clothes due to the cold weather in front of their destroyed house. So they're trying to have some kind of commerce. Children still have to play, and they're just kind of playing in the rubble. But these are pictures from, from UNICEF. It kind of feels like some of the hardest, most beleaguered parts of the ghettos of the U.S. in areas that have fallen into disrepair over a very long period of time. To see it kind of as a, as a war zone is, it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. One other thing I wanted to mention about this is how you can help. People are always looking for ways that they can support at least the, the children and the families and the humanitarian aid there. How can you be part of it? Well, there is an agency you may have heard of called USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. All they do is fund humanitarian aid around the world. I have covered USAID. I flew with uh, Samantha Power, who was the long time, long time executive with USAID on a mission to Haiti years ago after an earthquake there and flew in a military helicopter and looked down over the damage in Haiti. You could see where the landscape was kind of scarred with these long streaks of brown where mudslides had just kind of carved into the mountainsides. And you could also, when you fly up to the border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, which sit on the same island, how you could tell exactly where the border was because the Dominican side was all lush and green and the Haitian side was all brown, nothing grew. It was all wiped away, almost like, almost like it had just been colored in and, and hard stenciled at that line. It's remarkable, the difference. But USAID's job is to be able to, to corral these kind of resources. And if you look on their website, they've got lists of organizations that you can donate to, and also links to look at their background on GiveWell or Charity Navigator or Charity Watch the Better Business Bureau. And these are, UNICEF is among them. The UN Population Fund is one of the groups. The UN World Food Program, Catholic Relief Services, International Medical Corps, Airlink, and so on. There are also opportunities to volunteer, but they obviously have some warnings for people who would be disaster volunteers. And on the website, 
there's also some guidance for how to do that and how to think through whether you should volunteer. But this is one of the ways that you can, can help out. The way you find this site, if you just go to cidi.org, cidi.org, I will put it in the chat. That's the Center for International Disaster Information. And on the homepage, you'll see a link to the Levant Complex Emergency. The Levant is the name for that region of the Middle East. On that page, I'm going to drop the link into the chat right now. Oop. Drop the link into the chat right now. You'll get more information on the organizations that USAID would recommend. I am not telling you to give to these organizations. That's completely up to you. But at least these are a few that you know have been vetted through one source. And this is also a U.S. government official clearinghouse of information. So if you did want to help out, that is a way you can help out. Two other things that I think are worth noting on this, and then we will move on. I definitely want to talk about the thing with the Catholic Church, but two other things to note. I told you yesterday there was a Pentagon news conference going on about the attacks on ships in Yemen. The U.S. government has a new operation called Operation Prosperity Guardian that is designed to stop literal pirates off the coast of Yemen from attacking container ships that go through the Red Sea and around the Gulf of Aden, this very busy shipping channel. They say that they are attacking these ships in retaliation for Israel's war against Hamas. And they say that they want the campaign, excuse me, to stop for the sake of the Palestinian people. As we mentioned yesterday, the Houthi rebels in Yemen who are causing these attacks or who are behind these attacks are also supported by Iran. Hamas is supported by Iran. Hezbollah in Lebanon is supported by Iran. So there's more underneath all of this. But the U.S. is moving up with Operation Prosperity Guardian and announced this new task force to go after these pirates, basically, who are attacking passing ships. The press conference was happening as I was on the air yesterday, so we couldn't talk about it live. Uh, having read the transcript of it, I'm glad we did not just take the whole thing live. But... They did give a few more details. 20 nations have signed on to participate. Australia is one of the nations. Greece is one of the nations. There's now a list that has kind of grown to any number of countries that are either in the region, like Bahrain, which just sits on the Persian Gulf, or that have shipping interests that are threatened here. Also, they clarify that the point of this is not to go and like shoot down drones or to sail ships under different flags or to go after the people who are doing all this. It's more of a police and patrol kind of thing where they're there just to kind of defend those ships. They say that there have not been any strikes. There hasn't been any what they call kinetic action, um, that they have not conducted any strikes against the Houthis. So thankfully it hasn't gotten personal. It hasn't gotten kinetic as they say in military circles. There's been no kinetic activity and they say that they hope there is none. But that's kind of where that stands right now. So we will see whether or not they are able to keep those ships kind of calm. One other factor that I want to get to, and then I'll, I'm going to pause for just a second, because for, it feels like, you ever have like a, like it feels like there's something just sitting in your, like a pepper, like you eat some pepper and it lodges in your throat and, and it just irritates and it's like, there's no way you're going to get me out of your throat. You're going to have to run your, your vocal cords through the dishwasher if you want to get this out of there. That's my life right now. But before I take a sip of tea and try to get this thing out of the side of my throat, one more thing I wanted to show you. 
we talked about what this could mean for us here in the U.S. economically because of all of it's happening happening in the Red Sea. Container ships that are moving goods around the world. Abercrombie and Fitch has already started flying more of its products instead of using shipping routes because of all of this that's going on. IKEA is concerned that some of their furniture shipments could be delayed. You've got oil tankers that are having to move in different ways and sail in different pathways. And these costs are all going to be passed on to you, our valued consumer. So the economic aspect is one piece of it. But what about the political aspect of it? Cook Political Report this week changed its predictions in terms of the presidential races and how Democrats and Republicans are going to do. They usually characterize states as being solidly Democratic or Republican, leaning Democratic or Republican, or toss-up. Well, they just moved two states from lean Democratic to toss-up this week. One of them is my state, Nevada, right here. The other is Michigan. When you look at their analysis... It's clear why they made those shifts. In Michigan, here's the way they put it from Cook Political. New events have also jumbled the script for Biden's reelection, most specifically the war in the Middle East, which is dividing the Democratic coalition along racial and generational lines. This is an especially significant issue in a state like Michigan, which hosts the largest share of Arab Americans in the country. These voters make up something like 2 to 3% of the vote in the state and have been voting Democratic. According to reporting by NPR, Biden carried heavily Arab-American localities in Michigan by a little less than 70%. Going on from Cook Political Report, Michigan is also a state where young voters have played a very important role for Democrats. Democrats' tremendous success at the statewide and legislative levels last year also happened to coincide with significant young voter turnout. According to the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts University, Michigan saw the highest youth turnout in the country at 37%. An abortion rights initiative on the ballot was likely the biggest contributor to the surge of youth participation. On its own, one Democratic strategist who does a lot of work in Michigan told me that a drop in support from Arab American voters or a less than robust turnout from younger voters wouldn't doom Biden's chances in the state. However, said this person, combine both of those factors and add in the prospect of third-party candidates draining even more of the vote, and you have a recipe for another narrow win by Trump. Pause right there. Now, if you're a Trump supporter, that could be terrific news. Donald Trump hasn't really made a whole lot of inroads with young voters, but to not have the solid support of such a large cultural block in Michigan could have a ripple effect, could send a message, could create a way. The third party candidate thing I'm still a little fuzzy on. The one that gets called the most is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he may well be the one to watch in terms of third party candidates. Cornell West is polling in low single digits. Marianne Williamson polls in very low single digits. I'm going to throw this out there. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm going to throw it out there. In the event that something unexpected happens with the whole court process over the Supreme Court and everything else, you know who I'd be watching in terms of a third party candidate? Honestly, Donald Trump. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't try to go it alone. If for whatever reason the party turned on him, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis surged in the polls, something weird happened, 
I don't see why he wouldn't try to get his supporters to just write his name in and be the third party spoiler. It's a guess. I have no evidence to go on, but I have no reason to believe that he wouldn't other than the Republican Party machinery, including the fundraising around him, is extremely lucrative and that that is an easier way to run for president. So I don't think he would do it, but I don't know why he would not if push came to shove. Anyway, think about that and try to sleep tonight. Just a possibility that this could be an even more interesting election than we thought. Coming up, I want to talk to you about the latest dictum from Pope Francis, saying that same-sex couples can be blessed by Catholic priests. What does that actually mean? It kind of depends on your definition of bless. There was a Catholic Church document that explains the logic behind this. This is just one shift in Catholic doctrine, but it's happening at a time when a number of Christians are dealing with this exact same cultural fault line, what to do about LGBTQ plus people. This is the kind of fault line that has come up before, particularly in Protestant churches. And when it's come up in the past, these fault lines have torn the church apart. One Protestant denomination is tearing apart right now. And come 2024, it will not look anything like it looked a few years ago. We'll get into the document from the Catholic Church and what's happening with the United Methodist Church when we come back. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Glad to have you with me today on this final show of the year. Yes, I am going to take next week off. There's just too much other year-end stuff that needs to get done. Need to do some prep for the new year. Got plenty of research and story preparation to get done. Got to do my books. I've had to learn how to use QuickBooks this year for the very first time, which is kind of wild. It's uh, I'm a TurboTax guy. I know how to do that, so it's not like I don't understand money. But QuickBooks, it's a thing. It's a there's a reason why I get why people get paid to do that <laughs> year-round, and that's all that they do. So I need some QuickBooks time. I need some me time. I need some time to just get this show ready for the new year and also to work on a new project that I'm putting together. Those of you who sat in on the Ask Me Anything this week, and thank you for that, know about what I'm working on. Everybody else will know soon enough. Let's just say it's something that I think we absolutely need in this country, not just during an election year, but all year round to help keep us sane and to help prevent our political fault lines from tearing us apart. It's something we used to have a lot more of in this country that we don't really have now, especially on national television. And I want to not really revive it, but advance it in a way that makes a lot more sense and that is shaped for 2024. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so I need some time to work on that. Watch this space. But next week, there will be no episodes of The Nightlight. I may post something if I'm inspired. Like, I may just put something on the podcast feed or on, on the Substack page. Watch this space, but there won't be any scheduled streams next week. Um, but just need some time off. And besides, you're going to be traveling. You're going to be doing stuff. You're going to be powering down for the end of the year. I appreciate you hanging out with me. But... Go do interesting things, <laughs> come back, and then we'll talk about it later on. Uh, for those of you who are listening on the weekly podcast feed, thank you very much for your support through the year. Or if you're brand new to the Nightlight, welcome. 
I'm glad that you're here. Please follow me over on my Linktree site, linktree.com slash nightlightjoshua, L-I-N-K-T-R-E-E dot com slash nightlightjoshua. You can subscribe to me on YouTube and watch the live stream Wednesday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Put a few dollars in my online tip jar, or you can upgrade to the premium podcast, which gives you three shows a week instead of just one show on Friday. So thank you all for your support all year, and we will... Keep it going. Keep it growing in the new year. Also, we had a silly conversation yesterday about creating a t-shirt, about some merch. I'm going to do that shirt. I'm going to do it. I was going to have a mock-up ready for you today to put that whole thing together and just kind of say, do you like this design or do you like that design? You'll have to wait until the new year. But we are going to do that shirt. And those of you who were here on yesterday's show, you know what shirt I'm talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to do it. We are absolutely going to do it. And maybe, maybe if you stay tuned, I might give you guys a coupon code, maybe just so you can get like a little bit of a discount and then to, no, but don't, don't tell nobody. Don't tell nobody. Just between us, just between us. <clears throat> Let's move on. You may have heard in the last few days that Pope Francis, who has been getting a lot of attention for being a more progressive Pope, in terms of Popes anyway, in terms of the papacy, has made an announcement that shocked some people within the Catholic Church, that delighted some of the Church's more progressive members, and that also raised a lot of eyebrows, including mine. Skeptical? I certainly was when I heard that the Catholic Church was going to allow same-sex couples to be blessed. The write-up from Politico makes it clear that this does not change the Catholic Church's stance on the conventional definition of marriage. That remains the way that it is. But, and I'm quoting from the Politico article, the declaration makes clear that it should not take an exhaustive moral analysis for same-sex couples to receive blessings. The declaration goes on to say that, quote, a blessing offers people a means to increase their trust in God. The request for a blessing thus expresses and nurtures openness to the transcendence, mercy, and closeness to God in a thousand concrete circumstances of life, which is no small thing in the world in which we live, unquote. Pope Francis had previously expressed openness to blessing same-sex couples in an October letter to conservative cardinals. So, what is this about? This is about a number of Catholics in America who are LGBTQ+, or who are allies of the community, trying to find some way for the Catholic Church to be a more welcoming, less judgmental space. You may or may not know this, but you already probably know a very prominent gay Catholic who has a very progressive stance and is very visible, very out there, and not out there as in like out there, but out there is in terms of being visible and being vocal and being well-known, and it's Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow's a practicing Catholic. When she was on Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, and I'm just reading from a write-up from a writer named George Howland, she talked about being a practicing Roman Catholic. It's not the first time she's mentioned it. I believe she was profiled in Vanity Fair, I think, where she talked about being Catholic as well. She told Mark Maron on his podcast, I pray every day. I doubt the Catholic Church is happy with me, but too bad they're stuck with me. And she was raised in the Catholic Church in the Bay Area of San Francisco, an area in kind of the northeast 
Bay Area called Castro Valley, California, which is much more conser- much more conservative than San Francisco. It's also a decent drive from San Francisco, so it's not like you just kind of look around the corner and you see the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> it is a it is a world apart. But she was raised Catholic. But she told Mark Marin, and this is according to George Howland's write up, she never experienced a crisis of faith or abandoned her religion. As a young woman, Catholicism was relegated to the background while she focused on her self development. Marin responded to her conjecture that the Catholic Church would be unhappy with her membership by saying, the church has enough problems, you're the least of them. Quote, when you have those kinds of problems, though, Maddow said, I'm exactly the kind of problem you focus on, unquote. She also said that she finds prayer to be helpful in her own life, rarely praying out loud, but just kind of in my head. She said, quote, the act of stopping what your brain is otherwise going to do to do a deliberate thing, which is based around giving thanks is both a reset in a way that's a psychic pause, but I also think it helps you get your head on straight. It makes me not a better person, but more the person that I want to be, unquote. So you already probably know a prominent gay Catholic, Rachel Maddow. I would love to talk to her more about her Catholicism one day if I ever got a chance to interview her about it. So this is not a theoretical matter. There's also a piece in USA Today that talks about some of the Catholic ministers who have been trying to reach out to the community over the years and their hopes for what this could mean. USA Today refers to a Reverend Paul Rosbund, who is the chaplain of Out at St. Paul, which is the LGBTQ plus ministry of St. Paul Church in Manhattan. He said it is a work in progress, meaning this measure, quote, it's only in the past generation that the church has actually seen and recognized that there are gay people who are faithful Catholics. Then they also quote another minister, Millie Barber, excuse me, a social worker, Millie Barber, who is a social worker and a lifelong Catholic. She said she's already reached out to her priest who agreed to bless Barber and her wife. Quote, my ultimate dream is to one day have our marriage validated in the Catholic church, but along the way, we definitely do plan to have a blessing, unquote. So this is a big deal for people who have tried really, really hard to remain a part of their faith or on the flip side, who have not really had to try, who have been able to remain a part of the Catholic Church without feeling like they were in this existential conflict between themselves and their faith, and they just want to see that all move forward. So what does this actually mean? Does this mean that the Catholic Church accepts the existence of same-sex couples? Are they okay with it? Are they cool with it? Is the devil in the details, so to speak? Is there something we're not seeing? Well, I am not Catholic. I am Protestant, was raised Baptist in the primitive Baptist church. But I do know how to read my Bible. And I know my Bible fairly well. Um, One of the stories that I think I told on this show a while ago, in fact I did, was about having to learn how to defend myself from religious homophobia by learning the Bible better than my assailants. And I got so good at it that whenever I would raise questions that were pertinent to their theological view, they folded. They just fell apart. It's funny how that works sometimes. I saw a clip. Can I find it real quickly? Hold on one second. If I can find it, I'll, uh, I will show it to you. Give me just a moment. It was a clip of, I think I saved it on Instagram, 
which is a dangerous place to go for news and information. But I do have a list of interesting posts that I'm like, I'm going to use this on the show one day. I'll use this somewhere someday. Yep, this is it. Um, I'm going to see if I can send it to myself really quickly and move the link over so that you can see it. This is one of those Jordan Klepper type reporters who goes to a rally where, you know, people are, you know, like a pro-life rally and questions, questions this one woman about her faith, about her beliefs on this matter. And she doesn't quite know how to deal with it. Let me see if I can get this clip to play for you. Abortion, no exceptions. So this says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And that's from the Bible? Yeah, from Jeremiah. Actually, no, the sound is terrible. Basically, she's got a sign that says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, from Jeremiah. And she's saying that because of that, abortion should be illegal. And then he asks, didn't God kill all the firstborn sons in Egypt? And she pauses and she says, I think I'm done. And she no walks away. And that's the end of the conversation. Sad, really pathetic. As you know, as we've talked about on this program, that is not the prerogative of believers to do. The Bible says you have to be ready to answer people's questions about why you believe what you believe and to do so, here's the key, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect, those are the rules. So, and I'll even show you. I'll call it up, because I've looked this verse up way too much. So there is a very good basis for a document like the one that the Catholic Church put out. Here it is, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. If you ever encounter a Bible thumper in your life, and whatever your religious convictions are, are entirely your business, but these are the rules of engagement that Christians agree to by being believers in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That's what the Bible says. You don't get to thump me with the Bible. That is neither gentle nor respectful. So why are you doing it? You're not doing it for Christ. Maybe you're doing it just for yourself. Have you considered it? The rules say, don't do that. So why don't you put the Bible down, stop thumping, just start talking. That's the value of this document. Now, if you get into it, there's a real need for this conversation. And it's not just among Catholics. You may not be aware of this, but the United Methodist Church is in crisis right now. The United Methodist Church used to have about 30,000 congregations in the U.S. It has been cut by about a quarter. More than 7,600 UMC churches have disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church. It's the largest exodus in this denomination since the Civil War. And the issue, LGBTQ rights. That is one of the key issues. There was a December 31st deadline that was set back in 2019. They said anyone who wants to take their church and their assets away from the United Methodist Church may do so without judgment or prejudice because we cannot resolve this issue. And churches began to split off. 
So a denomination that used to have 30,000 churches across the country has now lost well over 7,600 churches. This month, according to Christianity Today, another 74 churches in Florida voted to leave, 51 in Illinois, 152 in Mississippi this month alone. So in this year alone, more than 5,600 United Methodist churches have have left this year alone, 5,642 this year. The New York Times talks about one of the churches, one of the big Methodist churches, and some of them are gigantic, that is leaving, which is White's Chapel Methodist Church in South Lake, Texas. 17,000 members at that church. It has a coffee shop, an indoor playground, Christmas festival with pony rides. It's one of those mega churches within the United Methodist Church. And until July, it was the second largest United Methodist congregation in the country. And they pulled away. They pulled away over the issue of ordaining and marrying LGBTQ people. So we remain very, very central. We, I, I'm gay. Hi, for those of you who don't know me. We remain very central to the church's debate over what it is. And I don't just mean the Catholic church. I mean the church, the body of Christ. This is an enormous issue, especially at a time when you have lawmakers trying to ban drag shows or trying to demonize drag queens or trying to make trans children feel like they're not allowed to play sports or to even exist without their parents knowing everything about their gender identity instantaneously, which can be a very dangerous thing, case by case, but can also be very problematic. So the issues that affect my community are absolutely front and center in ways that have very tangible effects, particularly for people of faith. And that's whether we're talking about people of faith in church or people of faith on the campaign trail, because the appeal to the same set of values cuts across our politics and it cuts across our religious lives, our faith lives. I'm not going to tell you what you should believe. It's just worth keeping an eye on this. We are a very common punching bag over cultural issues that comes up every election cycle, but it runs deeper than that. And right now the United Methodist Church is about to kind of break down the middle. So what is this document? What does this document from the Catholic Church actually say? It's kind of fascinating And I want to take you through it. By the way, you saw that it was the biggest schism since the Civil War. There's an article from Patheos, which is just kind of an interfaith religion website, that lays out when U.S. Christian denominations split over slavery. That was the issue. Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists already split over this cultural issue. So this fault line is not new. When people say, oh my God, hell in a handcart, the world's never been through anything like this. This is such an unprecedented, no, it's not. (laughs) It's not unprecedented. We go through this every few hundred years. But the interesting thing is, the slavery fight happened starting way back in the 1830s, formally. But slavery began to be criminalized, began to be abolished before the US, excuse me, the American Revolution was over. The Battle of Yorktown, which ended the revolution, was in 1781. Pennsylvania abolished slavery in 1780, during the American Revolution. Massachusetts abolished it in 1783, right after. By 1817, all the northern states had either ended it or were on the path to it. There were still some slaves in New Jersey 
when the Civil War began in 1861. But those were the ones who were basically not who were who were born before emancipation, but they were the last generation of it. But among Baptists, for example, they split over slavery. They had been debating it since the 1780s. Eventually, in the 1840s, they split more formally. And the split-off peace, the peace of churches in the South that was not ready to make abolition a matter of doctrine, is now known as the Southern Baptist Convention. That's where the Southern Baptists came from. They split away from the larger Baptist church over slavery. And today, the Southern Baptists are the largest evangelical denomination in the country. These cultural matters are highly consequential to the future of churches. So now, caveat, I'm not saying that the Catholic Church is going to split up, right, any more than it already has. I'm not going to say that this is about to you know, create a rift in the Catholic Church. Part of the whole idea of Catholicism is it is a direct unbroken line back to John the Baptist that really kind of withstands cultural changes. Protestant denominations are offshoots that were, I guess, viewed as radical back in the days of Martin Luther when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church at, uh, at, at, on the door of the church. But I don't think it's going to like tear the Catholic Church apart. But it's definitely going to raise a lot of questions about how can you even do this? How do we make this work? I don't want to drown you in scripture because this gets super duper complicated very quickly. But I do want to show you the document. There is a text. It's a declaration on the pastoral meaning of blessings that comes from the Vatican. There are a variety of work groups. This one's called... Uh, the dicastery for the the doctrine of the faith, whose job is just to interpret Catholic doctrine. They're basically committees. A dicastery is a prayer group, but it's basically a, a committee, a work group. And so they put this whole thing together. And the idea is to explain what the teaching means and how it should be applied for Catholics practicing. Again, I'm not here to tell you what to believe, but I think it's interesting to see the way that they're trying to split the difference on this. They mentioned that Pope Francis raised the possibility of blessing same-sex couples, and then they decided to go into it, try to make it very, very clear as to how that can work, and they begin to explain it. First thing to note, blessing in the sacra sacrament of marriage. To be clear, Pope Francis's recent response to the second of the five questions posed by two cardinals offers an opportunity to explore this issue further, especially its pastoral implications. That's the point of this document, is giving pastors, priests, guidance, like how do I make this decision? It is a matter of avoiding that something that is not marriage is being recognized as marriage. Therefore, this is from the document, rites and prayers that could create confusion between what constitutes marriage, which is the exclusive, stable, and indissoluble union between a man and a woman, naturally open to the generation of children, and what contradicts it, are inadmissible. 
This conviction is grounded in the perennial Catholic doctrine of marriage. It is only in this context that sexual relations find their natural, proper, and fully human meaning. The church's doctrine on this point remains firm. Pause right there. So to be clear, this document is not designed to liberalize the view of marriage in the Catholic Church. Far from it. This doctrine is designed to find a way to bless same-sex couples whose relationship the church still views as illegitimate. How is that possible? What room is there to bless something that you've already said you don't support? If we already know that you'd rather we would just go straight or something or just like not be together or I don't know what the remedy is, then why are you blessing? Like what, what is this? Why even wade into this issue? The document, as I'll show you in just a second, does a little bit of leisure domain that I find interesting. There are blessings and then there are blessings and then there are blessings. And the key is which one you're asking for. It's an interesting legal, uh, religious argument. It gets a little legalistic. I don't know. I'll explain it to you. See what you think. I think the interesting piece of this is the way that the document from the Catholic Church tries to break down what a blessing is. I mean, what is a blessing? You know, somebody sneezes, bless you. Like, what is that? What does that even mean? You know, don't let a demon get inside your soul while it's exposed when you sneeze. Like, the, okay, fine. Thank you. But in a way, if you think of it that way, that gives a different kind of piece to how this document views what a blessing is. I know that sounds goofy, but hear me out. When someone sneezes and we say, bless you, that old stereotype plays in. It's an old stereotype. We, we do it now as a pleasantry. Um, we don't do it when someone's hacking up a lung from COVID, but we do it when somebody sneezes because that was the old stereotype. When you sneeze, like, you know, exposes your soul and a, a demon could hop in and, and make you do weird things from the movie Beetlejuice or whatever we thought it was. So when someone sneezes to prevent them from suddenly going, Dah! we say, bless you. And then they're fine. But that is part of the idea that is explored in this Vatican document that there are all kinds of different blessings, that we bless one another, and that blessings come from God, and that they move in many directions. So there are blessings, and then there are blessings, and then there are blessings. As much as I know my own mind and heart on this matter as a gay man, I'm also just kind of as a, a very erstwhile student of religion, interested in the way that the Catholic Church is trying to answer this. And I think that if other Catholics and other people of faith kind of understand the argument, it might give people something to think about in terms of how we deal with one another, particularly as people of faith. I'm not saying that we should be following the Catholic Church's doctrine, but it's interesting. It's, it's food for thought. Let me get back to the document from the Vatican explaining how this would work practically for priests. One of the pieces of the document reads... Blessings are among the most widespread and evolving sacramentals. Indeed, they lead us to grasp God's presence in all the events of life and remind us that even in the use of created things, human beings are invited to seek God, to love him, 
and to serve him faithfully. So establishing that, establishing that blessings are a common part of the faith. There's a book called The Book of Blessings, which is a very Catholic thing. As a Protestant, I was not familiar with this book of blessings, but it is a book that lays out the various kinds of blessings that are sanctioned within the Catholic Church. So a lot of this is very, you know, it's already kind of written out. Further down the document, when a blessing is invoked on certain human relationships by special liturgical rite, meaning marriage, it is necessary that what is blessed corresponds with God's designs written in creation and fully revealed by Christ the Lord. For this reason, since the church has always considered only those sexual relations that are lived out within marriage to be morally licit, licit is the opposite of illicit, the church does not have the power to confer its liturgical blessing, one that would somehow offer a form of moral legitimacy to a union that presumes to be a marriage or to an extramarital sexual practice. Pause right there. Presumes to be a marriage. So to be clear, if you are gay and you are married, the Catholic Church says, no, you're not. That has not changed, just to be clear. And the document goes to some pains to say, that is not the point of this. We are not trying to legitimize people with this. But it also says that we shouldn't be quite so stingy with blessing. The document goes on to say, there is the danger that a pastoral gesture that is so beloved and widespread, meaning the blessing, will be subjected to too many moral prerequisites, which under the claim of control could overshadow the unconditional power of God's love that forms the basis for the gesture of blessing. Precisely in this regard, Pope Francis urged us not to lose pastoral charity, which should permeate all our decisions and attitudes, and to avoid being judges who only deny, reject, and exclude. Pause right there. That's an interesting statement. So if the document's to be believed, and maybe you believe it, maybe you don't, it sounds like the Catholic Church is showing some self-awareness, or at least Pope Francis is trying to express that, that it's very easy for Catholics to be seen as the religion of no, that you have to climb some mountain and cross every stream in order to get a blessing, that you can't just be blessed because you asked for a blessing, but that you ha we have to kind of be heavy and heavy-handed gatekeepers of blessings. I find that interesting. I find that kind of remarkable. Then it goes on to explain that whole thing about, well, there are blessings and there are blessings, there are blessings. I, I know that I said that and it may sound a little screwy when I'm like, oh, you gotta, you gotta kind of break it into pieces. Here are the pieces that it's breaking into. The document breaks down kind of three kinds of blessings. And I know that the terminology, it, it, this isn't precise terminology, but this is the way that they explain it. They refer to ascending, descending, and extending blessings. I've never heard this language before, but it's interesting. Descending blessings. I'm going to paraphrase here. Descending blessings. God blesses man. That is a descending blessing, descending from heaven. An ascending blessing. Man praises God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Very common, although I grew up hearing it 
It's so funny. Like me growing up in a black church, I see this verse and I immediately hear, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless. And I'm hearing the music in my head. You know, walking down the aisle of the church, bless his holy name. Like that's my experience of this verse. But now it makes it like I, I understand it. Because walking into church, that's the whole point of the devotional. You know, the choir walks in and the music starts, and that's the point of praise. So this is saying that that kind of praise is an ascending blessing. With me so far? Descending, God blesses man. Ascending, man praises God. And then extending, that's the other one. Extending towards others. Zechariah regains the use of speech, blesses the Lord for his wondrous work. Simeon, while holding the newborn Jesus in his arms, blesses God for granting him the grace to contemplate the saving Messiah. So there's all kinds of blessings, blessings and then blessings and then blessings. And I think part of what the church is trying to say is that we get very caught up on having any sanction of something that we consider to be <gasps> sinful and that we have to just kind of like build a wall between us and that thing. Not necessarily, because there are other options, that all blessings are not exactly the same. That it doesn't, and this is from the document, it doesn't mean that you approve of every little thing that someone does. But when somebody asks for a blessing, why would you withhold it? It's trying to get through to people who feel like, ah, get, the, what, get away, over there. It's trying to kick back on that. In fact, going forward, the next session, next section, Section 20 of this document, one who asks for, asks for a blessing, I'm quoting from the document, one who asks for a blessing shows himself to be in need of God's saving presence in his life, and one who asks for a blessing from the church recognizes the latter as a sacrament of the salvation that God offers. Pause right there. The underlying theology of this is we really hope you'll stop doing the gay thing, and if you ask for a blessing, that must mean that our doctrine still holds some sway in your life. Let's not break that. In a way, it's annoying for me as a gay person. It's like, I'm still not quite enough. I'm still not quite good enough. I'm still not quite worthy enough. You got to give me that kind of a sideways blessing. Thanks, Dad. On the other hand, it also kind of, I hope, if people read this closely, might force us to look at the way we deal with one another and how quick we are to just cast people away as a rule, right? It creates a third way where we can have a little bit of equalization. Now, granted, I don't like being equalized to other people because, well, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, so let's all seek blessing together. To me, that feels like 12 degrees off center from the way we should be dealing with one another, I would much rather be dealt with as a child of God made in his image. And you're not blessing a sinner. You are blessing an equally worthy child of God, equal to you. But that's my Protestant point of view. If you're Catholic, you might view it exactly the opposite way. And I get that. That's your view. I totally get that. That's what I'd prefer. I do, however, appreciate that Pope Francis is trying to get Catholics to consider the possibility that no one is untouchable, 
there's a certain veil. There's a certain veil's the wrong word. How do I describe this? How do I describe this? When you put it like this, <clears throat> when you grow up and begin to understand the point of baptism and salvation, there's this idea that you have been washed clean. And then you come out to yourself as being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, queer, questioning, however you define yourself. And this newly clean spirit suddenly has a film over it that will never go away. But you realize the film didn't just land there. It always was there. You just couldn't see it. So how do you walk through life? Being told that you can be washed clean by the blood of Jesus but you always still have enough dirt on you to condemn you forever. I think the shift that Pope Francis is trying to make is to shift towards the condition of connection that we have through faith rather than that film of distance and unacceptability that at least Catholic Church doctrine teaches. It's a step toward allowing people to just sit next to one another and not rank one another quite so much. It would be nice if we were able to figure that out more deftly. And as much as I don't necessarily agree with the doctrine of the Catholic Church because I'm not Catholic, I do have to at least appreciate the effort to get people to stop looking down at one another and kind of going, mm, what are you? Am I allowed to be close to you? What are you doing? What did you say? Where have you been? What holes did you crawl out of? Who do you sleep with? What do you think? How did you vote? I think that mentality that tries to get us away from rank ordering one another in terms of our worth and acceptability, that's a step in the right direction. That's something we struggle with on a secular level, even now. If you think it's weird now, Wait until 2024 and see how much harder this is going to get. This is going to get way more difficult. And at least he's trying to get people to kind of sit next to one another, sort of, even though this doctrine doesn't really fling the doors open. But he is trying to get people to understand that there are different options for the ways in which we can kind of make people feel like just they're ranked in a taxonomy. He also calls out the church on this regard. Section 25 of this document, I'm quoting from the document. The church, moreover, must shy away from resting its pastoral praxis on the fixed nature of certain doctrinal or disciplinary schemes, complex, but he explains it in the next clause, especially when they lead to a narcissistic and authoritarian elitism, whereby instead of evangelizing, one analyzes and classifies others. And instead of opening the door to grace, one exhausts his or her energies in inspecting and verifying. Thus, when people ask for a blessing, an exhaustive moral analysis should not be placed as a precondition for conferring it, for those seeking a blessing should not be required to have prior moral perfection. Pause right there. Wow. <laughs> if you don't feel called out by that one, you're not paying attention. What is he saying here? He's saying, just bless. You, you don't have to make someone fill out an application. 
if they say, could I just ask for your blessing? Just bless them. You don't have to bless everything about them. Just bless them. That's kind of the point of the church, of, of not just the Catholic church, but church, is to connect to God so God can work it all out. This is trying to say we are not doing a good enough job in being the spiritual bridge between humanity and God, and we need to put fewer gates on that bridge. That's remarkable. It's not LGBTQ plus acceptance. It falls short of what I believe is God's actual will. I'm starting to wonder if God put us gay folks on earth to teach you straight people how to love. I'm wondering if he put us here just as an ongoing test for you so that you always get a chance to see just how Christ-like you really are. It makes me wonder, like, maybe that's part of the, the mystery of God's wisdom is that he orders us to love and he constantly places people on our path that we would deem unlovable and then watches to see what we'll do. What if that's it? Are you passing the test? No one gets 100, right? No one aces it, but are you at least passing? I'm intrigued so much by the spirit of this document. It's not full LGBTQ acceptance, but maybe it doesn't have to be. Maybe this document is powerful because it doesn't ask people to begin to change their political views. I mean, it does refer in the document to irregular situations and couples of the same sex. Irregular. So it's not asking people to change the sacrament of marriage. Indeed, it's not changing the sacrament of marriage. But it might be changing something even more important. Excuse me. It might be changing something even more important. Even if you believe, oh, those nice gay people down the street, they're finally realizing they're sinners. Let's bless them. Which is also spoken to in this document. Not directly, but that's kind of the point. But even just allowing people to sit next to one another, to not be quite so damn judgmental of one another, to just not wish that I could carve this piece of you off or slice that corner of you away, and just allowing people to see one another as people just a little bit more in the context of an institution like the Catholic Church is huge is absolutely gigantic. And I wonder if people will be able to view it this way, to view it as a more universalizing experience, even through the doctrines that are very homophobic, that there's at least a featherbed of general rules of the road. Like, hey, 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 you don't get to pull somebody away from any connection to God whatsoever. You don't get to do that. The document ends like this. Reading from the document. The world needs blessings, and we can give blessings and receive blessings. The Father loves us, and the only thing that remains for us is the joy of blessing Him and the joy of thanking Him and of learning from Him to bless. In this way, every brother and every sister will be able to feel that in the church they are always pilgrims, always beggars, always loved, and despite everything, always blessed. Interesting. 
We'll see how far that goes in the context of the church. Can we learn to not just seek to be blessed, but to be a blessing to others? I'm sure there's someone in the crowd who's like, Josh, I'm not religious. Please don't talk about this anymore. I think this is a cultural issue more than just a religious issue. It's fascinating to me. It is going to be the fault line of the 2024 election, not just LGBTQ people, although we are absolutely going to be in it because that train is never late, especially with so much of a focus on Republican politics this year. That train is never, ever late. We are a perennial punching bag every time for conservatives, every single time. So it's going to come up, whether it has to do with drag story hours or trans children playing sports or any number of other things. Remember, in Dobbs versus Jackson, the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, there was a concurring opinion by Justice Clarence Thomas, who said that on the same basis that Roe was overturned, it might be worth looking at some other rulings, like Obergefell versus Hodges, the one that legalized same-sex marriage, or like Lawrence versus Texas, the one that outlawed sodomy laws. He suggested we reopen those issues. So if you think there aren't people who are contemplating that now and just kind of waiting for the right moment to bring the case, I don't see why they wouldn't. So these issues are going to come back up. I wish they wouldn't. I wish they were settled. They are not. But it's an interesting way to view how the Catholic Church, and about a fifth of the U.S. population's Christians define themselves as Catholic. It's interesting how that's coming back up and where that will go. Hopefully it's a step forward. I don't know. I don't know. But I do like the idea of, ble of being blessed to be a blessing, that idea that the blessing isn't just for you. You got to kind of pass it on. You got to use it. Or what's the point of being blessed in the first place? To hoard them so that you get more points on the board when you get to the pearly gates in front of St. Peter? It's too late then. You can't use them there. Use them here. Use them where they'll do some good. One more thing I'd like to talk about before we move on. There was a piece from the Washington Post that had a list of ideas to improve democracy. I think those are kind of interesting. I'll run some of those by you before we go. Also, there's a bit of a Christmas controversy. Did you know the story about the night before Christmas? There's some question as to who actually wrote it. I will tell you about that ongoing controversy before we go. How will you follow the election without losing your mind? 2024 is going to take a lot out of us. We need space to connect, vent, ask questions, and share ideas without judgment. That's what the Nightlight is all about. And that's why I've been upgrading this show from a weekly podcast to an interactive talk show from one day a week to three. It's an even better sanity saver than ever in these hectic times, but it can only keep going if you do your part. 
So show your support as a paid subscriber. Click the link in this episode's description to sign up. Look, we're going to be drowning in politics for the next year, and it's going to get ugly. Well, uglier. And you deserve someplace free from that ugliness, a place where everyone is welcome, where there's more to life than polls and pundits. Corporate media is not going to meet this need for us. And I should know. I used to work there. But I like it right here, answering to you, giving you my analysis and perspective on the things you want to talk about. Let's get into all of it, not just the election year storylines we rinse and repeat every four years. Don't you deserve better than that? Now, some of your fellow listeners, they've already shown their financial support. And without them, you would not be hearing me right now. This is your chance to get involved by clicking the link in the description of this episode. If you become a paid subscriber, you'll unlock a premium podcast feed with three times as many episodes, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Free listeners only get Friday. You'll also gain access to a monthly Ask Me Anything session for subscribers only. And you'll get a discount on Nightlight merch in my online store. If you want, you can sign up as a yearly subscriber and save almost 20% compared to a monthly subscription. By the way, you don't have to subscribe to show your support. You can also leave a contribution in my online tip jar, just as a way of saying thank you with any amount you like. The link to the tip jar is also in the description. So come on, let's keep each other sane in 2024. And let's show America that the same old political talking points are not going to cut it anymore. It is time for something better, something that helps us get on with life, not hide under the bed. Please become a paid subscriber of The Nightlight or leave a few dollars in the tip jar. Click the link in the description to show your support. Thanks. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Got a few more minutes before we wrap it up for this year. Remember, there will not be shows next week. We will be back with brand new shows on Wednesday, January 3rd at the same time, same place, same channel. Uh, for those of you who may be watching right now on the site formerly known as Twitter, which doesn't look like there's a whole lot of people there, but for you, whoever you are, I hope you're enjoying the program. If you are, go to my profile, click the link tree link in my bio, which is this link down here, and you can follow me on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitch. There's a great group on YouTube right now chatting it up. They're lovely people. You should go over and say hello. You can also find all the links to follow me on Substack to read more of my essays and articles. There's an online tip jar where you can put a few dollars if you enjoyed today's program. Although, there is a controversy at Substack right now over kind of the same thing that's bedeviling Twitter. There was, I, I'm, still, I'm still looking into it. I'll show you. There's a, there's a piece about it in The Verge where basically there was a, a poster who, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly, I don't know precisely who it was, but there were a number of publications and The Atlantic reported on this, that there were publications on Substack, which is the site that hosts my webpage, with overt Nazi symbols in their logos and other posts on Substack supporting those views. This week, there was a post from Hamish McKenzie, who was the co-founder of Substack, basically saying similar things to what I think Mark Zuckerberg has said in the past at Facebook and what Elon Musk is saying now on Twitter, that I don't support those views, but we don't believe in censoring those views. 
So I need to do a little more thinking about this. Now, if you are a paid subscriber, that doesn't mean that your subscription is going to go away. There are lots of other places I can host the website, some of which might actually be easier to host at. So I haven't made any decisions yet. But it's like, God almighty, can I just get settled somewhere and not have to think about this over and over, like every three months, about whether or not it is morally appropriate to be there? But whatever. Uh, X is going away. I think that's just going to be a passive stream in the new year, but whatever. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I will drop the link in the chat so you can see this for yourself. I was not familiar with this. And I... I'm going to have to make some decisions about this. Goodness gracious. Uh, so that's the link. I just dropped it in the chat. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what comes of this. What else? Let me get to a few of your comments before we keep going. I see Ken on YouTube. Ken writes, I'm not religious, but I like the idea slash goal of being a blessing to others. Imagine how much better the world would be if most human beings practiced this simple, lovely notion. Yeah, I know. It's a wonderful thought. It's like... It's just being decent, just this basic sense of decency and not being so bound up in judgment of other people. That would be nice. <clears throat> Excuse me. That would be nice. Hopefully in the new year, this cough will be gone. <laughs> I am I want this cough to be gone. Please bless me through the, the screen, whatever you're looking at, for the cough to go away. In Jesus' name, amen. Philip writes on YouTube, thanks for this conversation. This all affects me and verbalizing my thoughts on this has been a struggle. I hear you on that, Philip, totally. I mean, it's a, it was a struggle for me even. What helped me was digging really hard into the Bible because I'm, I'm, I'm combative and pissy. So my pissivity kind of dove me in like, show me where it is, let's figure it out. And I just started flipping pages really aggressively and learning really hard. And then I think once I was able to sort of articulate my argument, because I had an argument to make about how the scripture affected me as a gay person, that gave me a measure of peace. But I don't think that is for everyone. I think some people, they just fall away from the church. I, like they, they just can't remain in their faith. I don't know how to be part of a faith community again after everything that's happened, but I still hold on to the tenets of it. And I have enough information to defend myself and to hopefully kind of protect others as well in terms of how those conversations happen. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It is very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Let me show you <clears throat> one other thing that I thought was interesting. Nope, close that link, I already showed you. So, next year, 2024, uh, there's an election coming, have you heard? It's gonna be crazy. And a lot of people are already saying, this could be the end of democracy. It's going to hell in a handbasket. What are we going to do if you know who gets elected, if he who must not be named goes back to the White House? But there are larger challenges with democracy. The key thing that keeps me sane, whenever we're looking at the future of democracy, is the phrase more perfect. Right? It's the beginning. It's the preamble of the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. So in the preamble, the founders kind of baked this concept that there's always going to be room to move forward. That alone was revolutionary because King George III was like, God put me on the throne and everything I do is perfect by definition. And we were like, you know, no, sorry, that's not the way that works. So the idea that our union is struggling is not a bug. The struggle itself is a feature. We're supposed to struggle forward. We're supposed to look at the country and go, that's not good enough, it should be better. Yes, 
That's the beauty of America. That feeling of like, why isn't this better? That's the American in you coming out. That's the citizen in you coming out. You're supposed to speak those things. The problem is we get caught up in just saying the problem and not positing a solution, not trying to solve it. Well, there's nothing I can do. Well, then what are you complaining about? If you won't even attempt to search for a possible way to begin to be part of helping with a solution, then what are you whining about? You're supposed to help. You are empowered to help. That's the whole point. That's the point. Don't look at this and wonder why it isn't good enough. Look at yourself and ask, how can I make it better? That's what we do. That's one of the things the Washington Post talks about in a piece <clears throat> from Dan Balls called American Democracy is Cracking. These ideas could help repair it. And it begins with someone who does just that. Here's how the Post piece begins. On the morning of November 10th, 2016, Katie Fahey posted a short message on her Facebook page. It read, I'd like to take on gerrymandering in Michigan. If you're interested in doing this as well, please let me know. She ended it with a smiley face emoji. Fahey was then 27 years old with little experience in politics. Her message was born of general frustration that the system wasn't working for most people, including her. She thought that gerrymandering, the manipulation of legislative and congressional districts for political gain, was a major contributor to the problem of lack of representation. Further down, today, because of the grassroots campaign that Fahey launched, Michigan's district lines are drawn by an independent commission of citizens. Exactly. She said, hey, I think this should be better. And people got together and were like, you know what? You're right. <clears throat> this should absolutely be better. And so there you go. And it started to move. And people began to create an effort that changed things. They put an amendment on the Michigan ballot, passed it with 61% of the vote. After the 2020 census, they drew new lines. And according to the Post piece, the 2022 election was the first one held under these maps. Now, what happened is the Democrats took control of the state house and Senate. First time in four decades that that happened. The point is, whether or not you like the Democrats took control of the House of Senate or not, the point is that it shows that people can actually do stuff, <laughs> that you don't have to offload this to somebody else, that you can do things yourself. And so the post piece lays out a number of ideas. By the way, you might be interested in this graphic from the Princeton Gerrymandering Project laying out the states with the most extreme redistricting, and they have left it to processes that are controlled by one party or the other. They say that there are a number of states that have failing processes. Wisconsin, excuse me, <clears throat> Wisconsin has a court-controlled redistricting process that Princeton says is not up to snuff. Three states have gerrymandering that Princeton gives a failing grade that are controlled by Democrats. Those would be Oregon, my state of Nevada, and Illinois. A number of states have failing processes that are controlled by Republicans, Utah, Kansas, Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and my native state of Florida. So the problem is quite widespread. But the Post lays out a number of ideas to possibly improve things. They are interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about them, but they're interesting. 
Let me lay out a couple of them and see what you think. One is to expand the U.S. House. Now that I find interesting. The idea is that the House used to grow with the population. It has not grown in 110 years. The last time the House expanded was in 1913. Restricted by a law in 1929 to the current membership of 435 members in the House. The Senate remains at 100 people, two from every state. But the country's population continued to grow. The Senate expanded, of course, as we gain states. Today, and I found this very, very interesting, they looked at the number of people that each lawmaker represents. So if you break it down for, you have this many lawmakers for this size of population, how many people are you representing? In Iceland, it says the parliament represents about 6,000 people per member, each member. Look at other countries. Israel, parliament has 80,000 people per representative. Estonia, Luxembourg, Slovenia, Norway, Latvia, definitely smaller countries. The UK, one rep represents about 103,000 people, proportionally speaking. France, the National Assembly, each rep represents about 118,000 people. What about the U.S.? The average member of the U.S. House represents about 768,000 people per representative. In the U.K., it's about 1 to 103,000. In Iceland, it's 1 to 6,000. In the U.S., it's 1 to 768,000 people. In a report from the, report <coughs> from the American Academy proposed adding 150 members to the U.S. House that would bring up to 585 people as opposed to 435. That would be roughly the number of seats that have shifted from state to state due to reapportionment since 1931. That would reduce the ratio to about one per 566,000. Interesting idea. If the lines are going to be drawn fairly. What's the point of drawing more gerrymandered districts? So if there's a way to get around that, then maybe. The Post deals with that in its next idea. Multi-member districts and proportional representation. It's basically getting at this whole issue. A year ago, 200 political scientists proposed a dramatic change to the system. Multi-member districts and proportional representation. Each district would include several members to the House rather than just one. And those elected would be based on the proportion of the vote received by candidates from the parties competing. Undoing a 1967 law that requires all House members to be elected from single-member districts and adding proportional representation, the political scientist said, would mean almost every voter could cast a meaningful vote, regardless of where they live. That's kind of an interesting idea, that you have more than one person representing you. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how that works, possibly. And I also don't know that that would necessarily make a difference in terms of having more representation. I mean, if you add more people, presumably you could also add those people and carve the districts so that one person per district could just represent those smaller districts as opposed to districts that are so big they require more than one person. You know what I'm saying? It's like saying I can build in this one space one room with room for four people or split that room into quarters so that each person still has their own space. It's just a matter of how proportionally you deal with it. I guess multi-member districts, it could kind of flex and bend depending on proportionally how people like things. 
Does that add more instability? Does that add more chaos? Eh, I don't know. That seems challenging. One other measure that is on, <clears throat> excuse me, that's on the Washington Post's list is ranked choice voting and open primaries. I've lived in a ranked choice voting state, which is California. It's an interesting idea. Uh, ranked choice voting is very, so I'm not even going to read it from the Post because here's the simple way to read it. Ranked choice voting is very simple. You rank the people you want to be in that office, say like your top three choices. We count the people who you voted for as your number one choice. Whoever's at the bottom of that list, their votes are reapportioned to the people who their voters said were their second choices. So say your top choice for <clears throat> the mayor of Las Vegas is me, and your second choices were, you know, Wayne Newton and uh, Kylie Minogue. I'd be honored that you voted for me over Kylie Minogue. I'd vote for Kylie first, but I am that homosexual. So suppose that I came in last. You, has your second vote, voted for Wayne Newton. So now your vote for me moves to Wayne Newton. Does that make sense? Now say Wayne Newton gets knocked out. Kylie's your next choice. So that losing vote for Wayne Newton then moves to Kylie. And it keeps going until someone gets 50%. So the candidate with the lowest percentage, if no one gets 50% plus one, drops out and their votes are moved to the candidates who are left by preference. So if you, but that process keeps going until someone gets a majority of the vote. The idea is to give you more flexibility in who you pick by making the candidates broaden their appeal, that they cannot just run to win outright, they have to run to also be possibly your second choice, because that could be the thing that puts them over the top. Nevada is about to have ranked choice voting if they approve it at the polls this year. They approved it already. Voters have to approve it again, according to the Washington Post, in 2024 before we implement it. It's a little complicated. It's a little complicated. I know, even that explanation, I'm sure some of you are like, what? It's a little complicated. But it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. The other idea we talked about changing the House, what about changing the Senate? What about that? Two members of the, of the Senate per state, regardless of population. <clears throat> Some democracies, as the Washington Post notes, have moved to diminish the power of upper chambers that were not based on true popular representation. Britain's House of Lords once had the power to block almost any piece of legislation passed by the House of Commons. That power was trimmed substantially a century ago. So maybe, the Post is suggesting, maybe we deprioritize the power of the U.S. Senate. Possibly. I don't know if I love that idea. Partly because the Senate has had a bit of a calming effect on political insanity in this country. The House has been loud and noisy, just like America. We love a reflection. And the Senate has been much more deliberative. The Senate's also been really kind of slow in terms of adapting to change, in terms of moving on certain measures. The Senate is designed to kind of be more of the greatest deliberative body in the world, or so it calls itself. And I don't know if changing that is good at a time when we are at each other's throats politically. 
It might be nice. And I know this sounds a little crazy. It might be nice to have a space where grandma and grandpa in the back of the room can kind of calm things down quickly. Because in the next few years, I think things are going to get a little noisier. And that might be some value of that. The other piece, though, to changing the Senate would be changing the filibuster. That could be one thing. And also that the Post talks about that. The filibuster has become a target of those who want to change the Senate. Once used sparingly, and often to block civil rights legislation, the tool has been employed far more frequently in recent years to stymie all kinds of bills and nominations. One proposal calls for a return to the practice of senators having to stand and hold the floor for the duration of their filibuster, rather than merely signal their intent to block legislation, a change that would limit its use. I like this idea. I like the idea, because you know you can just filibuster now with an email, right? You don't have to actually stand there. You could send it to the Senate Majority Leader, who right now is Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, and just sort of tell him that you intend to filibuster, and you can tear your ass home. I want you to have to stand there and deliver. Stand and do it. Read the phone book, go through the works of William Shakespeare, spell, name every state capital in alphabetical order, like Amber Adkins did in the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous. Whatever it is, you have to do it. Stand there and take it. Don't just say, nope, and walk away. That I don't like. That I don't like. I do like the idea of making people filibuster in person and just kind of being able to, <laughs> to tune back in at 3.14 in the morning and watch on CNN where you have someone like reading through <clears throat> their favorite Martha Stewart cookbook or whatever. And then you take the chopped parsley and combine it with the radishes and you heat the oven to 450. Gentlemen's time has expired. I'd like to give my colleague three more minutes. Gentlemen is recognized for three more minutes. <sighs> In the oven at 357 degrees. Mr. President, can I please take a... I think that would be fantastic. I want that on TV. Make it happen. Definitely getting rid of the filibuster rights would be very nice. It would also possibly move some of, and I see, is it... Yeah. Uh, well, jo Joseph on YouTube says it's very Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Very true. Nora writes, standing filibuster might create incentives for the nonagenarians to retire. Yes, indeed. It just might. It just might. And then, of course, the big one that they mentioned would be the elimination of the Electoral College. <sighs> it's a tough one. But I think this one might actually happen. Of all the ideas on this list, I do actually think that the Electoral College could disappear. It will require amending the Constitution, but if you look at the history, and I think today's generation is much more savvy at finding the history behind all these things, I don't see... I don't see how it's going to survive much longer. I mean, the Post rightly notes that the House strongly passed a measure back in 1969 to get rid of the Electoral College, but it died in the Senate because Southern segregationists didn't want it, because it would change the voting power of states that have a legacy of segregation. They didn't want it. Just the patina of that, I think, eventually gets to the point where people want nothing more to do with it. Post also notes a Gallup survey back in 2020 found 61% of Americans support getting rid of the Electoral College, 89% of Democrats, 68% of Independents. 
only 23% of Republicans. But to me, support of independence is much more telling because the electorate, the biggest chunk of it is neither Democrats nor Republicans. It's independents. Independents are the plurality, every so often the majority of how voters identify themselves. So if it's got the support of independents, it's got the support of the mainstream, basically. And at a time when I think we're looking at a variety of other changes, like, you know, changing the complexion of the Supreme Court, I think we're kind of ripe for change right now in a lot of different ways. But the one that I like the most, bridging divisions and civic education. Y'all, we have to just kind of get people to talk to one another, find ways to bridge the divides with one another. And it, the Post article lists a number of efforts. There's a lot of work going on. It's not that no one's trying to do it. It's that a lot of this work is not being amplified. That's one of the things I plan to work on in the new year is introducing you to some of these organizations who are standing in the gap to try to help keep the democracy from ripping apart. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of either nonpartisan or bipartisan organizations whose whole job is to try to get us to remove our hands from one another's throats long enough to just talk to each other. So the idea that, oh, we're just pulling apart, no one's doing anything, it's, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, that is just not true. There are lots of people who have been standing in the breach every day in very quiet, anonymous ways, doing the work one by one by one to try to keep us from yanking apart. They need some amplification. And if I have anything to do with it, they're gonna get some amplification. I think that's a good place to kind of move on after I just mentioned one fun little story. And I'll also drop this in the chat because I think that one of the things that we constantly do too much of is keep things super serious. And I know that things are ultra serious, but before I go, I did see this one other interesting story about the story of Christmas night. Twas the night before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore, that poem piece in Bloomberg. There was a Bloomberg opinion columnist who wrote about a textual analysis to determine whether they actually wrote the story, whether Clement Clark Moore is the actual author. Oh, sorry. Scrolled past it there. Give me one second. There we go. That should be it. Nope. Scrolled past it again. Okay, reader view in Safari. Don't make me look bad. There we go. So this week, I'll size this up a bit. This week marks 200 years. It is the bicentennial of that poem. December 23rd, 1823, published anonymously in the Troy Sentinel in upstate New York. And this is the poem. Twas the night before Christmas went all through the house. That one. 1836, Clement Clark Moore, who was a professor at a divinity school in New York, submitted the verses under his name and the title, A Visit from St. Nicholas. He was always acknowledged as the author. Dies in 1863. And then a granddaughter of someone else saw a copy of it and cried foul and said that her grandfather, Henry Livingston Jr., wrote it and recited it to his children way beforehand in 1808. So there is this long-standing debate. They never presented hard evidence for the claim, but two English professors <clears throat> since the year 2000 have decreed that the poem more resembles Livingston's work than Clark Clement Moore's work. 
and they've gone back and forth. There have been mock trials. Apparently there was a Hallmark Christmas movie about this last year, about who wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas. According to the writer from Bloomberg, it looks like Moore actually did write it. There was a professor named Shlomo Argaman, who was a professor of computer science at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And he is using AI to determine authorship of documents, which I find fascinating. Submitted the text of the poem we now call The Night Before Christmas. Added to that the known works, the poems from each of these two authors and poems by other authors. And based on the statistical analysis, it looks like Clement Clark Moore did in fact write The Night Before Christmas. He says he would definitely bet on it. Wouldn't, he's asked, quote, would I bet $1,000? No. What about $100? Yes. <laughs> I, I'm going to use that line in the new year. You want to bet? I wouldn't bet a thousand, but I'd bet a hundred. I think that's a great way to couch it. Like, eh, I'm, I'm sure, but I'm not like, I'm not gonna King Solomon a baby over it, but I, I'm pretty, pretty much sure. I love this story. I love the idea that we can take information and use it in an AI model to do attribution because this kind of attribution technology is gonna be very valuable going forward. We are about, Excuse me, I'm almost done coughing. I swear I am. We are about to go into an election that is going to be attacked by a lot of deep fakes and misinformation and disinformation. Some of it is going to be fomented by AI, a lot of it, I think. It's nice to know that there are some people doing the work to try to use AI to get at the truth of what we can believe is authentic and have a reason to trust what we see. Y'all, this is gonna be a weird time going up forward. I know that was the night before Christmas. Who actually wrote it? Seems like a silly thing. But all of this technology is, is looping together. It's all connecting in a variety of ways that we can't yet foresee. So every one of these, ep these incidents, these efforts to try to advance the science can also be used to do some good. Now, whether or not Clement Clark Moore wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas will never keep me up at night. Whether somebody cares about the veracity of a document absolutely is something we need. And so it's kind of a cute way to go about it, a cute way to get people to think about it. And I say brava. Let's, let's keep doing this work. The concern that I have is that when it's done with everyday people to build the AI models, that they're actually getting more than they give. You know, you get a piece of my work to build these learning lang language learning models and I don't get paid for it. I would like to be compensated for it. Every time you use one of these AI apps, the new ones that are coming out to edit video or to transcribe a document, you are giving something of real value. You are giving someone, some programmer somewhere, the ability to build an amazingly powerful computer model and they are giving you back a convenience that you are also paying for. I think they're getting more than they're giving back. We gotta be careful how much we give to these AI models. I'm not sure that, that it's an even swap. And the more I think about it, the more I think, like as I use some of these products to cut video or make social media clips, I have found I can do it faster just doing it myself because I'm a professional. <laughs>
and I have the skills to do it and I don't have to ask a computer to do it for me. So I don't know. I feel like some of the people who are relying on AI to get their work done are always going to be at a competitive disadvantage and I'll always be just a little bit faster than them, which is exactly the way that I like it. Can you imagine Joshua Johnson faster than an AI computer that I can crank out the work and do it and put together a better show than some AI chatbot can do? Can you imagine that? Of course you can, because it's true. I am so glad that you decided to spend some of your year with me. Thank you for helping me get the nightlight off the ground. Remember, we will not have shows next week. We will be back on Wednesday, January 3rd from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern right here. Please sign up on the YouTube site, share this with your friends, and have a wonderful and happy holiday season. Safe travels, take good care of yourselves, have fun, put the news down, and enjoy yourself. So until we meet again next year, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for making time for me. Happy New Year and happy holidays. And as always, keep shining. Someone, somewhere, needs your light right now. Mm -hmm.